0: Welcome to the ninth episode of the PK Experience. My name is Peter King, I'm the host of the show, and I'm excited to bring to you today my guest in Tom Satterley. Tom is a former Delta Force military veteran, and he's also a St. Louis resident, which is where I'm from. So we got to sit down and have a chat. This is the first time I've been able to interview somebody live, which was great. and. For the occasion, I purchased a new microphone, which is why you're hearing my voice in crystal clear quality right now, and uh, why you will be in future episodes as well. (laughs) And um, so Tom's story is fascinating. Tom, uh, as I mentioned, was in the military. He was a part of the battle at Mogadishu, which you may have heard of. It was the, the battle that was portrayed in the movie Black Hawk Down. And Tom's account of the story is the most detailed account I think is even out there on the internet, uh, anywhere. I mean, in in my research for this, I didn't hear him go through the level of detail that he's about to share with you. I do want to preface this, though, by saying, ironically, I actually sat down with Tom before we started recording, and I said, hey, look, I don't know all the military lingo and, and acronyms and whatnot, and I don't think many of my listeners would either. So if we can try to tell the story without... Uh, using all the the acronyms and lingo, that would be great. And, of course, he agreed. And then, of course, as we started to interview, he, he launched into a whole bunch of acronyms and lingo. <laughs> so if he's listening to this now, he's probably laughing because, um, you know, it's, it's just normal language for him. Now, I, I had a choice as I was interviewing him. Um, do I stop him every two seconds and ask, well, what does that mean and what is that and what is that? I decided to not do that and just let the story unfold. Um, so I, I will say that the first sort of chunk of... Him explaining some of his military experience and his military career uh, can be a little bit confusing if you're not uh, familiar with the, with the language. Um, but when he starts to get into the battle at Mogadishu, he really just starts to tell the story. And it's unbelievable. It's a very vivid account of what happened. And uh, without further ado, I'd like to launch into the interview. Thank you so much for listening. All right. We are recording. Tom Satterley, thank you very much for joining the show. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um,
0: it's kind of nice. This is my first in-person live podcast as opposed to doing it over the internet. so oh, cool. I had to. I'm scrambling a little bit to find the right mic and stuff, so uh, hopefully the setting's okay for you. But um, So, as I was doing some research in, in your story and uh, just you know watching the videos that you had out there and things like that, I was just... I mean, it's, it's some heavy stuff. And... Uh, I, I'm for for those who are listening right now. Can you sort of give them a brief overview of who you are, what your what your story is, and and we can start to get into some of that in a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again, Tom Satterley um, was born in 1967 in Columbus or Seymour, Indiana, and grew up basically in small town Indiana, middle class family. You know, not broke, but my parents didn't buy me anything so. <laughs> You know, I had to mow lawns at an early age just to buy myself a bike or anything else I wanted. My parents were always working, and were always going to school. So, pretty much left alone on my own devices. You know, I have an older sister, middle aged brother, and I'm the youngest. I um, had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Just like any other kid growing up. Yeah. And uh, definitely not the military wasn't in my mind. I, really? I didn't know what it was, but I know my brother joined. He was two years older than me. And my sister's four years older than me. My brother joined the military when he was a junior in high school. So, he went to. Basic training in the summer between junior and senior year. Okay. So I'm a sophomore. He's a senior now, and I'm making fun of him for joining the military. <laughs> just, just dogging him out, you know. Of course, he'd beat me up for it, but, um, just I had no idea what the military was. I just knew to make fun of it. Nobody in my family, nobody in my immediate family, had been in the military. Huh. I think my dad's brothers yeah. were in Vietnam, and yeah. my grandparents, you know, were in in the war and joined the military for years at a time, but um never crossed my mind and then one of my best friends joined the military after high school and I was building houses and uh still thinking about going to Indiana University trying to save some money my parents had money that I'd blown you know for college (laughs) and uh he came home from basic and AIT going to go to Germany and there was a John Cougar concert up in Indianapolis and so we were driving up there together he's telling me all about basic and AIT and going to Germany and how great it was you know he was indoctrinated for sure
0: yeah, I was going to say, stop talking about how great basic was. <laughs> yeah, he was in a
1: sales pitch all the way up to Indianapolis for that hour and a half drive. And uh, by the time I got to Indianapolis, I had just kind of decided I was going to join the military. Huh. So we went to a recruiter office up there because we got there way early. And uh, instead of sitting around drinking and doing, you know, whatever, um, went to the recruiter's office, talked to them. and I'm like, well, I'm, my mom's, you know, studying to be a doctor. I think I'll be in the medical field. I'll try that. And uh, of course, he pushes me towards his quota which at right. the time was a combat engineer, you know? Well, you like to blow stuff up, and you do build stuff, so you get to do both. I'm like, well, that sounds really cool, you know? So I signed up that night for the That's Army, crazy. and nobody knew. You know, went to the concert, went home, told my parents the next morning, and they about passed out. Right, but, I can um, imagine. I was old enough to do it on my own, so it didn't matter. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, what about college? What about, you know, the construction company you work for? The guy wanted me to take over his company, even though I was just starting. Hmm. You know, he had older guys, contractors and things, so... I'm, I had a little bit more intelligence a little bit more know about the, the construction because i took it in high school as well yeah and i told him and and uh everybody was kind of let down i felt a little depressed about it but you know i uh that was the fall of 85 and okay. i didn't leave till february 86 for fort leonardwood missouri okay. so i came straight here to missouri unknowing that i'd ever be here <laughs> again and uh did OSIT, which is uh, one station unit training, where you do a uh, basic and AIT at the same place. Instead okay. of basic, and they ship you off somewhere else. I did it all right there at Fort Leonard Wood.
0: How long, how long was that? And
1: that's about three months. Okay. it's about three months long, and so in June, um, I got sent off to Germany for my first duty station, and that was a two-year assignment, but I ended up getting married in between AIT and leaving for Germany when I was on leave for 30 days, and so that changed it to a three-year assignment, so I go to Germany. I'm in a combat engineer mechanized unit in Villefleck in Germany, and the mm-hmm. wall's still up. So, our major, mm-hmm. our major job at the time was to, when the Russians were coming through the Fulda Gap, the horde of Russians that you know taken over Western Germany mm-hmm. from Eastern Germany, um, my job, my, my unit's job was to basically pre position, we had pre-position explosive charges about three feet across, wow. about six inches thick, called cheese charges. You would lower mm-hmm. them in the manhole covers in the roads. And then prime them and blow the roads to slow the Russians down. Wow! Along with their bridges were pre pre built.
0: Wait, so this was what year was
1: this? This eighty
0: Ladies, okay, mid eighties, okay. Yeah. And so, what were the Russians doing there at that time? Well, uh, they were, they they were all in long?
1: East Germany, and everyone was afraid the Russians were going to push through, take over Germany, Western Germany. Okay. And they only had basically one way to go: it was the Fulda Gap near Fulda, Germany, but the mountains and everything. There's this huge gap where all their armor could come through mm-hmm. so our job was to blow all the roads and all the bridges to slow them down for the wow. units in the united states to have time to load up and come over and, and defend and you gotcha. know, push them back so that's all we did was practice for that blowing up bridges and roads <laughs> all the time and uh, a lot of the platoon sergeants at the time were vietnam vets and they were <clears> kind of burnt <throat> out and tired and i get it now you know back in the day i thought what's wrong with these old guys Yeah, you know, they don't want to do anything yeah but, they they had done their stuff and they yeah. were they were kind of tired. But we had a our, my platoon sergeant was a former Hungarian sergeant, and he had done a bunch of other things. He was more familiar with Europe and different different training through different armies, the German army, the French army. So he took us as the first full platoon to go through French commando school in North Germany, down in uh, the Black Forest area. Okay, and so went through a month long course as a platoon down there to where we through learned through
0: the French's. Is- yeah the French
1: ran it and uh, oh wow
0: that's interesting it was
1: the barracks were on the German side it was kind of right on the border in the wine land of Germany so you got the river down there the Rhine river and all the beautiful wine country and and we did training on both sides and uh, we went through E&E training where they took all your clothes away and gave you like these potato sack pants and gave you (laughs) your boots back with no shoestrings in them and a brown t-shirt lots of cool you know uh, unconventional warfare type stuff like if a tank's coming rolling up on you how to roll underneath the tank and then put a sticky bomb on it and roll back out you yeah, know it was weird stuff lots of obstacles Same exactly yeah. you know they're still living in that area but lots of obstacle courses and uh, long hikes to the Black Forest carrying all your gear which was horrible but um, it was fun <laughs> right. it was fun so then he took us to the swiss march It was like a 40 mile hike a day in the swiss alps Oof. for like five days we went down there for three of those five days 40
0: miles a day
1: yeah you know
0: with all your gear and of course
1: yeah we yeah. took all our gear no, everybody no, else is no. kind of hiking and drinking beer along the way we're, we're hiking <laughs> for real and uh, in the end we stayed in the in uh, in Bern, switzerland all their their cities in switzerland are built up like little you know they don't really have a military but they all have guns, and they all have, like, uh, leadership in blocks of the city, mm-hmm. and who's in charge, and <clears throat> if there's a war, what you do. Mm-hmm. And there's bunkers built up underneath, so we stayed in those bunkers, those fallout shelters, mm. and it's basically like this table. If this is one shelf of, of bunks in a, in a hole in the ground, you know, there's, like, seven layers of this, and, and there'd be 20 people laid out, just sleeping next to each other, <laughs> Jeez, you know, and uh, people are coming in drunk and falling asleep. I'm already asleep, because we're waiting for the next day to do good, you know. <laughs> People just climbing next to you and falling asleep so all those different experiences and then they had a a slot open up for german ranger school and you had to they were going to send an officer from the headquarters battalion and i kind of spoke up i said why don't you run a, a competition and send the best guy you know send the best person that's cool and they were like well uh, okay okay so they had a green beret the first green beret i ever saw showed up in germany um he was wearing his green beret and he was changing units i don't know why he was an older guy, and um, they put him in charge of running the event. So he set up like a three day event with a PT test, a 12 mile ruck march, mm-hmm. um, swimming, land navigation, um, tactics. He set this whole competition up for over a three day period, and uh, I ended up winning it. And so I got to go to German Ranger School, but I didn't speak enough German. And so they sent a, uh, another guy with me that spoke German. Mm. And he fell out after the first week. So I was alone for the rest of the month and a half there. And that was kind of a breakdown for me. Um, a lot of how you get over things is through comedy and telling stories at night when you're yeah. sitting around, you know, pulling security. And I'm trying to tell stories. These Germans are they're just they're looking at me like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, all right. So I literally grabbed my boots and walked out to pull security. You know, and I'm shining my boots. I just started crying. There was just nobody to talk to. I was tired and miserable lonely. and lonely. Yeah. And, and I kind of got over that hump and past German Ranger School and so I, I decided I wanted something different other than going to the motor pool every Monday and working on our our M113 APC you know what's that it's a uh, armored personnel carrier it's not a tank it's okay. just a troop carrier you okay. know you got machine guns on top but yeah. the, the back will open up and everybody can pull peel out and yeah. then, now they're Bradleys okay so uh every Monday motor pool Monday you know driving that thing all week and then parking it and then Monday back to the motor pool it's just the same over and over again yeah and uh I wanted something different. So I tried to reenlist for Special Forces. They had like a $25,000 bonus program.
0: And what, what made you decide to try that? Uh,
1: I knew I was going to stay in versus I came in for four years to get $25,000 for college and then get out. I knew after going through those schools that there was more and it was fun yeah, and challenging. So I decided I would re-enlist to be a Green Beret. And uh, the bonus made it easy. But I couldn't get the bonus. I, I had made E5 so fast... That I didn't get a school you needed to get E five, I got promoted E five because I won Soldier of the Year. I'm um, doing some competitions and I'd won Soldier of the Year, so they sent me to the E five board. And basically, their cool. question was, um, my first sergeant, who was an old Vietnam vet, and our company was the 54th Engineer Battalion Raiders, and uh, sitting in the board in front of all these sergeant majors for the E five board, he's like, "I just have one question for you." He's like, "Who runs this motherfucker?" <laughs> and I was like, I jumped up to attention. I'm like, "Raiders run this motherfucker." First sergeant, he's like that's so all I got sit down I sat back down and he looked over and he's like no one else has questions right and they're like uh, no first art and so he goes get out of here and I got out of there and he came out and he's like alright you're E5 you're and I was, like, I was like okay that was easy. cool I'll take the pay so I didn't have primary leadership development course which I was supposed to go through but you have to have it to go to SF but I couldn't get the school because I was already E5 they're like let all the E4s go first you know let them get promoted yeah so I went ahead and just re-enlisted for jump school just to get to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Okay. And I knew when I was in Fort Bragg, that's where home of special operations was. I could I could dig around and find something. So I come back in 89. Yeah, about the summer of 89, I came back to Fort Bragg, went to jump school, ended up at Fort Bragg. And then I started hunting down the, the Greenberry recruiters. Okay. And then uh, signed up and went in the end of 89... I went to SFAS, the Special Forces Assessment and Selection course.
0: What was the What was the training like for that?
1: It's uh, It's about a month long. Uh, they take you out to Camp McCall on Fort Bragg, and they put you in some—now well, they're nice, but there were some old barracks back in the day. <laughs> they give you four hours of sleep a night, and during that four hours, you have a 15-minute period you have to pull fire guard. So you have to wake up before that 15-minute period to get dressed. And after you're done with fire guard, you wake the next guy up. Once he's ready, you lay back down you try to go back to sleep. So you're getting about maybe three hours of sleep a night. Right. I think they did some research. It was like four hours a night is what you need not to go crazy. Right. you know. So that's what they kept it at for the month.
0: <laughs> Came a little less than that.
1: Do some classes, do some land nav, lots of team events where you'll have maybe 12 guys on a team with your rucksack and your weapon and, and food and water and you're carrying everything. And you'll have to push, say, like a, a Jeep, a three-quarter ton Jeep with three tires on it and and some poles over here and some stuff you can build with and you got to push it like through the sandy roads for like six seven miles once you get there you do about two events a day (laughs) and uh you get the other end They're like all right drop everything okay here's about 50 sandbags you got to fill each sandbag up to only where there's a fistful on the top you got to carry these sandbags 500 meters and drop them off okay sure so we get 50 sandbags we carry them and along the way there's these berms these huge berms you got to climb over all the way there and uh drop them off and you get to the end the other guy's like nope not full enough Dumped it out go back and fill it up so you do that all day for hours just to see who quits you know
0: just kind of messing with your mind a little bit exactly
1: you're not allowed to encourage each other you're not allowed to yell at each other you're just supposed to work together yeah and uh, the guys start losing it you know and there's guys that just can't do it but you have to keep them with you yeah so it gets it gets frustrating that you got a you got a guy that can't carry anything he can't walk that fast okay you take the map you navigate just stay ahead of us yeah they can't do that, so it gets really frustrating. And do they
0: drop or are they?
1: They do drop. Yeah. Um, nobody gets cut really, but a lot of people quit.
0: Yeah,
1: and uh, and even the instructors are like, "Who wants pizza? Pizza? All you have to do is quit, you know." And mm-hmm. then some guys really jump on that and go. I don't <laughs> think anybody ever gets pizza, <laughs> yes. but you'll do things like that. You know, here's a here's a three quarter ton trailer with one wheel, and here's a bunch of metal poles to counterbalance it. You know, and you all have to stay together. Or here's an event where. You know, ammo cans, wooden ammo crates full of lead and sand that you mm. got to carry as a, you know as teams. Just all week long, you're doing events. And it finishes up with a 22 mile road march oh, all the way back into Bragg for time, and then testing and yeah. psychological evaluation. So made that, and then uh, starts. You know, I was going for an 18 Charlie Special Operations Engineer Sergeant, so that was easy for me. That six months of training after that to get the Green Beret was easy because they have weapons, then they have Uh, camo they have engineers and then they have the medics and then they have the intel guys so um I was going to be an engineer I already knew all the formulas I'd already memorized them over my years in the army (laughs) basic training I knew them because they drove them into you at uh, Leonard Wood but I knew all the demo formulas I knew all the calculations and where to place all the charges on bridges and roads and trees and things like that so that was easy just learning all the unconventional warfare things and how to deal with foreign armies and how to get them to do what you need them to do when they don't really listen. You don't speak the language. So uh, that,
0: foreign armies that you're working with in different parts. Right. Of the, so, like, like, what are some of the things that you learned to do that for that?
1: Well, you have to learn how to teach everything you know instead of just knowing it and doing it. You have to learn how to teach it. So you go are through. you learning
0: their their cultures too? And yeah, absolutely. How to influence. Yeah.
1: So you'll you'll take over like by with and through and and uh, you work by them or with them or through them or you'll get them to do the job for you and that's their legacy mission as a green beret since the war started everybody's assaulting and attacking and capturing people but um and then you'll have like regular army units are flying in to train these armies back up once you take down the country you have to train their army back up Mm -hmm. to defend itself so you don't have to be there forever Mm -hmm. does it work i don't know we're still in germany we're still in japan you know we'll be in iraq forever (laughs) we'll have to be in Afghanistan forever. It just takes a long time to change, change the culture. The people have to want to do it. They're so used to a way of life that yeah. it's it's foreign to them even though to us it's normal to live free and natural and to go shopping and be nice to each other to them it's just more rudimentary. Oh,
0: it's a complete shift in yeah. in a way of being. It's yeah.
1: A lot of people are like you don't like Walmart? You don't like to show up and go to Walmart? People are like I hate Walmart. <laughs> so I, I want to go to shopping every day for my food and it's fresh and that's what I'm used to. Yeah. So be like trying to get us to go shopping every day because we don't have a yeah. refrigerator. <laughs>
0: you know, who are we to impose our exact way of living on right. a Completely different type of uh, of culture, which makes sense. But. That's
1: that's what's tough when you're a Green Beret, and I never did the legacy mission as a Green Beret. I was in such a short time before I already had selection to go to Delta. Okay. So I, I was only in Fifth Special Forces Group at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, for several months.
0: So and what what is the difference between Delta and Green Beret and Some of the other special forces.
1: So you've got SEALs, you've got white side SEALs, which are not special ops. I mean, they're special ops, but they're not, you got white and black side. So let's say SEAL Team 6 is black side. Uh, White side SEALs, you have multiple teams on the East Coast and West Coast. And they're more like, let's say Rangers. Okay. You know, Rangers are also special ops, but they're at a different level. They're more like shock, you know, going and take something down large numbers of people.
0: black ops meaning like
1: like more secretive Yeah, you know Um, so they call it white side or black side and and really and then you have different tiers tier one and tier two and then everybody nowadays is an operator it's just a cool term
0: (laughs) yeah how uh, how has that shifted just given our culture with social media and the truth coming out I mean I remember growing up just hearing the word Navy SEAL or even Delta Force was like who are these guys and now it's like you know you you get your own movies and you've got um, you know everybody knows about SEAL Team 6 with uh,
1: yeah Rangers you're allowed to be in the Rangers talk about the Rangers there's really nothing secretive about what you're doing where you live and where you're stationed other than the jobs you do nobody ever wants to tell where you're going and when you know that's just that's a big giveaway same with the white side SEALs Um, a lot of the SEAL stories you hear are white side SEAL stories so and they have a kind of a problem with too much social media going out they're trying to put a cap on it um and that's why even at asymmetric we you know seal soft day okay seal is a bigger word people know it more because it's been in the movies and books more yeah um not a lot of delta even when i say it now that i've been out since 2010 it's like i kind of whisper it sometimes and and i've actually been attacked by wives in the unit now that i'm (laughs) doing speak engagements you said delta you're not allowed to say delta and i'm like yeah you are when you're in, you're not allowed to mm. never, you know, but when you're out, it's in your, it's in your paperwork, you know, it's, it's public information. You're mm-hmm. allowed to talk about it.
0: And I'm sorry, what was the difference between like say Delta Force and seals?
1: Oh, it's it? a trick question. <laughs> that's, that's people listening to be like, Oh, what's he going to say now? Um, you know what I would say it's maturity and the selection process for seal team six to go, to go be a seal. You go do uh, buds training right. and, uh, and then you have Hell Week. And every SEAL goes through that. And that's kind of designed because the Navy comes in and their jobs are different. In the Army, you come in and you, you, you're a, a soldier first. Everyone goes to basic training. You learn how to use a gun. You learn how to do individual movement techniques and how to attack a building or how to assault through a field. So it's ingrained in you from day one. Okay. SEALs are in the Navy or in <laughs> Air Force, things like that. That's not their sole mission. So they, they learn a different job. They don't learn those basic tactics on the ground right away. Right. So they have to go through BUDS. Um, do a lot more of that tactical training, and then go through the SEAL training to get there to get their tried and become a SEAL. They're they're learning it for the first time, and they're a lot younger. So maturity is one thing. Um, Which, age and maturity about
0: is, actual uh, deve- mature like emotional maturity. Right, okay. right.
1: They're a lot they're a lot younger. Um, huh. The youngest age to go into Delta is probably twenty three, huh. and I think I went in right at twenty three. Okay, um, you have to have been in, in the army or the military and on your second enlistment so you have to show a little commitment you have to be a certain rank e5 to e8 to come in or officers have to come in as a after their first command and i think if they come in as a captain you know they're going to be major really soon anyway mm-hmm. and they've already had a command so they've already been out into the regular military they've already led troops is
0: that is the maturity requirement because you're dealing with other cultures and villages and Plus the national
1: command missions, the higher, higher level missions that just really no fail missions, you know, and it requires a lot of maturity, a lot of being quiet, not talking about it. Mm. Um, so that's why you hear a lot less stories about Delta, less books on Delta. I don't know if there's ever been a movie on Delta other than Chuck Norris made one way back in the day. And there was a TV show, (laughs) which is kind of way off, you know, the Delta Force back in the day. Um, you'll see references in movies and it's funny when we watch movies, um, you'll see them oh we're gonna bring in some special ops guys and they'll come in with the beards and long hair and they're acting kind of quiet in the corner and the crazy guys over here like oh those are the seals see those bad ass over there those are delta guys (laughs) like oh and I'm like we laugh all the time because it's like (laughs) that just what people think you know Um, what's the truth I think there's a lot more quiet professionalism in the unit um, just due to maturity level and the culture and SEAL Team 6, great guys as well. And even even all the other white side SEAL teams, a lot of great guys. But they're just, they're younger, they're bigger. And when, you, when you're bigger, you have more opportunity for mistakes in there and people, people screwing up. So our numbers are really low.
0: Bigger um, in, in terms of uh, numbers? Numbers, yeah. 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 Um,
1: they've got 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10 on the East Coast. 6 being, you know, the black side. Um, and then they have 1, 3, 5. That's where they're stationed. Seven and nine on the west coast. Yeah, so they're they're huge. Rangers are huge. Green berets are huge. The unit very small compared to that. Very very small. Yeah.
0: So uh, where did you do your training? So I'm sorry. So you went into you trained for green beret.
1: Yes, six months for that. Okay, and then and then I went to language school. So yeah, I'm 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 going through the qualification course, the six month qualification course, and there's there was two or three guys from the unit that went through they were already in the unit but they went to the green beret, uh qualification course to change their MOS their military occupation specialty because when you're in the unit when you're in Delta you're still there is no basic uh, MOS for Delta it's just it's just you come over as a ranger you'll wear your your brown Bray now um, if you're green Bray and you go to Delta you wear your green Bray if you're an airborne guy and you made it you'll just wear your maroon Bray um, you'll wear all the same patches there's no patch for delta, you know it's it's uh and so you get promoted with your peers in that job in the regular army. now your packet that goes before the board is stamped secret that that sounds special mm-hmm. to some people right you've done more you know you've they 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 take into the f- effect they take into the f- um, consideration that you're in Delta and they know that you're doing a difficult job and you're training all the time but you still kind of get promoted along with your peers in the regular army. So if somebody was over there and they were a mechanic or something and they made it, they may want to go to the Q course mm. because green get promoted faster than mechanics, Got you know? It. So these guys were over there going through the Q course to change their job and hopes get promoted. And I didn't know it. You know, I'm just, I just think they are guys going through the Q course and, uh, when I made the Q course and I'm in four months of Persian Farsi on Fort Bragg taking language school and two guys showed up at our course and I'm wondering why they weren't in language school you know they don't need a language in depth uh, I'm sorry
0: it? which language Farsi a Farsi okay. Persian Farsi Yeah. Are I, you, I ran are I you no <laughs> no
1: no I wasn't fluent after I took the course that was a nightmare that um, was four months of futility for me trying to learn that I mean I learned some stuff but it's all gone now it's hard it's, so it's, it's a, a
0: totally
1: <laughs> horrible language to try to learn and, and then make, to try to write, write it. Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> One guy in the class actually learned how to write and everything. Uh, he's had the capacity for it. Huh. He was, he was just a brain. Me, I was, no. I wasn't into it. When I realized how difficult it was, I was like, eh, it's no, not well, happening. It's just <laughs> <around>. <laughs> I'm just not <laughs> happening. And, uh, they approached me and they said, Hey, we watched you in the Q course, worked with them. You know, I knew them. I just didn't know where they were or where they were from. So, said, so we think you have what it takes. You should try out for Delta. Hmm. So they actually gave me the phone number and I called the recruiter when I was in language school and set up uh, a time to do the PT test and take some psychological testing. And I did it. They said, yeah, all right, you're approved and gave me a, a, a spring of 91.
0: What, what was it that they saw in you? Was it the.
1: Just my I guess. I guess my determination, my yeah. physical fitness, my motivation, yeah. maturity. Um, I had I'd already spent three years in Germany leading people. And that's a whole other nightmare that you you don't really get in special <laughs> operations because you work around other professionals. Yeah. So leading people in the unit was that was easy. Leading people in in the Green Berets is is a little more easier than than leading regular Army soldiers who have all kinds of problems and issues and mm-hmm. don't care half of them. You know, that they might be in because they have to be in or mm-hmm. they have no other option. So it's it's more difficult. So I kind of learned a little bit about leadership in Germany, and I guess it shined through a little bit. But gotcha.
0: So, so, so take us now to, um, I, I was amazed in, in, in the research that I did that really the battle at uh, Mogadishu was your first, like, real, I mean, I, I guess you had taken some some fire in some other battles or whatever, but this that was your All first.
1: still Somalia, yeah.
0: Man, like, what an initiation.
1: <laughs> right. My, it was two years in the unit at the time. I got in in spring of 91. By the end of 92, I'm now an operator in C Squadron. And so I've got one full year on me, you know, before I have to jump out and go to Somalia. So we just trained all the time, you know, preparing to do your job, save a life, take a life, whatever, but every day. And then Somalia's is kicking up, you know, we start rehearsing, um, months out knowing that it's coming up and, uh. And then when it finally came down and we, we went over, it was like, okay, you're now task force ranger. You'll have to shave your heads and blend in with the rangers. Yeah. So it was kind of funny because we all had a little bit longer hair at the time. And, uh, so all right, you need a high and tight. So basically guys are getting haircuts the day that they're going to the, to the airfield to take yeah. off. So everybody's all the rangers, their heads are tan already. Cause they've been, they've had that haircut for so long. You feature. can see all the guys with the white heads, you know, <laughs> and the, the tan lines on the sides and it's like, okay, I can obviously tell these guys are different, yeah. you know? And, uh,
0: so what, what, what was going on in Somalia at
1: the time? Starvation. Um, Muhammad Adid was, was using starvation as a tool, mm-hmm. using the food, taking the food from the shipments that we were sending over there and, and uh, taking down convoys. I think what, what caused us to pack up and start to go over was um, they attacked the Marines, killed some Marines over there in a convoy. Okay. I think they killed some uh, military police, and then they attacked some Pakistanis as well. Okay. So it was like, okay, we need to take out Adid, okay. which our charter is hostage rescue or kill capture, so all right, let's go over and capture or kill deed, you know, and his top people. So we had a list of people we wanted to go for in hopes of dismantling that clan and turning it over to a more friendly clan mm-hmm. that wanted to help out with the starvation efforts.
0: Can I ask you sort of a, a slightly different question on this? Like, what is, what is the U.S.'s interest in that? I mean, I know that that's a shitty situation, but... Yeah, uh,
1: probably just being the good guys i mean i think the starvation was going on for so long and you see them on the tv starving and i think public opinion started spiking why aren't we helping these people yeah okay well it gets big enough that all right now we have to act and go help these people whether we had interest or not over there at the time i couldn't say other than public opinion starts screaming out we should help these people so all right so the administration decides we have to go help these people so we go to help the people and they attack us. They're stealing the food. It's not working. So now maybe it's okay. Let's take a more strategic approach to it. Let's mm-hmm. take out the leaders. And then see if we can go back to negotiations. Because, you know, combat is just a, an arm of politics. Basically, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. So, well, I kind of only want to do part of this. If you come to an impasse and it has to happen, it's like, okay, combat. Reach out and smack them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you should pull back and go, now do you want to deal? Mm-hmm. Now, do you? Now do you see what's up? You can't do both at the same time, which mm-hmm. is where we fail, I think, a lot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We try to do political maneuvers while we're in combat, and it doesn't really work. It's like, reach out, smack them hard, pull back. Now you want to talk? No, yeah. Now let's talk about
0: mm-hmm.
1: your survival in your future versus us still coming after you for years to come.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And strangely enough, people still think they can get away with stuff and keep going, you know?
0: Yeah, I would I would not want to be on the receiving end of that. Um, so, Adid is... is Basically being an ass.
1: Being an ass. <laughs> taking all the money, taking all the food, and using starvation as a tool to win the war.
0: And so you guys are charged to go over there to, to take him out? Yes. So, and as I've heard, this is like, this was supposed to be like a 30-minute operation?
1: Like Right. We, we, we had done five missions before 3 October. Five or six missions before 3 October. And, you know, with limited success, we captured uh, Osman Otto, his financier, on the hit before which i think they showed in black hawk town he's riding the bike and then they take out the car it didn't really go down that way (laughs) there was nobody on a bike definitely nobody sitting in the market um but those those five or six missions you know some shots were fired nobody got hurt on our side Uh, we captured who we wanted to mostly and uh did lead anything not not really um the Osman Auto Capture, I think, led us a little bit closer to locations, and we had people, some locals, out in the out in the city. You know, would put a panel on top of their car if there was a meeting going on, and he could confirm that people were there. So on three October, <clears throat> helicopters flying overhead, and I guess the guy put the signal on top of his car. There's a meeting going on right now, and so that's how that's how little time we had to, to launch.
0: So and, this was a this was a Somali that was working right. with you guys yeah for so he puts out oh, just something on just top just some
1: little marker on top of his car something you know that nobody else would notice but the helicopter's looking for they know what car he is where he's at and if he puts it on top it's time to launch if nothing's on top he goes and he was getting nervous um, I remember he was getting really nervous like hey they're gonna notice me this is weird and finally the signal went and uh, me and some other guys had just gotten back from like a five mile run around the, the airfield along the beach and it was Sunday and it was about two o'clock and we just got back sweaty and tired ready to go eat some dinner you know and everybody was stirring a little bit.
0: Oh, so you didn't know?
1: No clue. Was... Yeah. Oh, wow. And they're like, get it on. Basically, get it on was what you got. So run inside, put on my kit, bottle of water, you know, uh, no night vision because it's two in the afternoon. And it's going to be about an hour, you know, say about an hour long mission at the most. Go in, grab and get out. So I was going to fly in, rope down, assault the building, and then the convoy would drive in and would load everybody up on the convoy and drive out. Because so
0: how far away was your base from where you needed maybe to Maybe three
1: miles. Maybe three or four. that close to each other. Oh, yeah. We're at the airfield. We're at the airfield. It would be like being at the St. Louis airfield and attacking, uh, well, whatever little town is about three miles away. You know, Um, And mostly friendly around the airfield. But then the other parts of town were the Bad Clan, you know, in the Bakara market where they sold all the black market weapons and everything. Right. So we load up, get on. We're sitting on the bird. Birds are cranking. We're waiting on our team leaders to come out of the talk and tell us what's going on. And basically get a white piece of paper in front of your face. You know, we're going to go in here. Here's about four or five buildings. You know, you'll run this way through the dust because you can't see. Because oh when the helicopter comes in, there's so much brown out, you can't see. So you're roping down into the dirt. You don't see anything. And then you just, okay, go that way and running until it clears. You're like, all right, where are we? All right, go. And then. That's
0: your whole that, was, that was, of.
1: Right. Wow. We could have planned it better, but by the time we're done the planning, nature. they're gone. Sure. You know, so had to get there. As <clears throat> soon as we start infilling, um, we're taking fire. I mean, our, our helicopter had to. Flare and hover outside of the security zone because the Rangers would set up an outer perimeter and we would go in and hit the target and they would just keep people out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We inserted outside of that just due to the brownout, the helicopter couldn't see, so he pulled up short. We roped down, it was like, All right, where are we now? Jeez. So we had to get off the street because we're getting taken fire already. We uh, kicked in somebody's door. Took the family down, set them down in the corner. Told them it's okay, you know, they had babies and everything. It's just so surreal. Oh man, that's And really you're trying to be crazy. nice, but you got to go. And bullets are flying. It's like, I right, just stay here, you know. Yeah. They don't understand what you're saying, so it's just, you're just trying to be nice in hand gestures with guns and helmets and and bullets flying. Oh, that's and uh, crazy. We finally get out and work our way down the street back to the Target building, and um, and we had about 12 or 14 that we had detained, and we handcuffed them, kind of asking questions, looking around, searching the buildings. It's time to go, you know. And then uh, five-ton outside got hit with an RPG and was on fire. And I was like, okay, it's starting to ramp up a little bit. You know, this we need to get out of here now. Yeah. We're still joking, like, I oh, hope we make it back for dinner, you know. I Got some good food tonight and yeah, well, still cracking jokes. Um, moved out of that building, put the detainees on the on a five-ton and moved into a courtyard of another house. And I was carrying like a big sack of uh, smally money, like a whole garbage bag full of money. It's like, I'll take this back. I found it in a safe. Um, probably worth $5. I don't know. You yeah. know, a lot of their money is none of ours. But, And uh, hear an RPG launch. Look up. You see the tail rotor of, of uh, the helicopter start spinning out of control, heading off to the north and the east. Mm. And I was like, you well, know, all right. Mission just changed, just got you gotta, know. Yeah. And they're sitting there waiting on the radio. They're, they're calling in, okay, we need the convoy to go here. We need you guys to move down the street about three blocks east and two or three blocks north and find the crash site and you gotta get there now because the Somalis are moving that way.
0: Right.
1: And we didn't know it at the time, but um, the reason they were so good with the RPGs that day was there was an Al-Qaeda training cell several blocks away from our target area. <laughs> and they were there in full force and they just came to the party, you know, and uh, they had all their weapons and they they were definitely better trained than the, the militia. Interesting. So they were hitting them. And they had modified, um, I'd heard they had modified their RPGs to blow up in the air. And I think they filled some with gas so they could try to hit these wow. helicopters. Instead of trying to hit a helicopter moving, they could hit near it and damage it, you know.
0: Interesting. So, and you, you didn't know about these guys until mm-hmm. after
1: Not until years later. Um, didn't even know they were there. Didn't even know Al-Qaeda really existed. It wasn't on right. a public opinion. I mean, yeah. they were that, they're that old. <coughs> yeah.
0: So the bird goes down. You guys are a few blocks away your task now to go basically check for survivors and right
1: try to go get survivors and defend the helicopter site get the wounded out and then head back so as we finally start we're just getting ready to push out and over there they have those center block and rock wall con you know courtyards and then the gates are just thin metal I remember standing there watching there was a ranger sitting against the metal gate just taking a breather leaning up against it his just neck explodes you know I just oh, took a bullet right through there. And, uh, I was like, we got to get out of here. Yeah. You know, we got to get out of here. So they load him up on the convoy. The convoy's going to go back. And, uh, well, at first they try to make their way to the crash site. And-
0: if I could just pause you for mm-hmm. a second, like what, what do you, since this is your first real shit storm, basically, like what, what's going through your mind? How are you process? Like, is this, did, did, did the train just kick in and just became second nature? Are you,
1: it is, it's muscle memory. Yeah. It's, uh my mind shuts down and even years after that when I'm in charge and people are getting hurt and people I know are getting hurt, my mind shuts down. It's just, I have a job to do. I can't, I can't care about that right now. Mm-hmm. You know, if I care about that, then my job's going to suffer. So, mm-hmm. I remember thinking that I got shot in the neck. I'm like, oh, damn, man, that, I'm glad that wasn't me, you know, but dang, we got to go. Yeah. And uh, load him up and we start heading down the street and every intersection we cross, it was just a volume of fire. And I remember looking up as we cross one and there's just hundreds of Somalis paralleling us they're heading to the crash site they're already closer they're heading they're a little bit, little bit north by a block or two so we know we have to give up security and use speed to get there mm-hmm. so we, we drop a lot of security where we'd normally lay down weapons clear the street and then send guys across we just went you know we just had to go and nobody really got hurt or hit until we turned north and right at the corner from turning north um, we got held up a little bit because that was the crash site street and there was already a lot of people down there and unknown at the time there had already been a couple of our guys that got out of the helicopter and had launched out to shoot at these guys that were approaching the helicopter and gotten killed they took a little bird and landed it right there at the intersection and uh you could see our one guys? guy yeah our guys okay. task force guys little bird right there the pilots were shooting out the window you know huh. and uh, and it can only hold about two or four guys and so one of our assaulters went over and grabbed the guy who just got shot friend of mine and was dragging him to the bird. And as he was dragging him to the helicopter, he got shot through the shoulder, mm. finished dragging him, threw himself on the bird, and that bird got out of there. And then that's about probably the time we turned the corner to head north and um, started taking a large volume of fire. So we're out in the street, spread out, trying to suppress that fire so we could push forward shooting two or three grenades, you know, uh, two or three is a grenade launcher, 40 millimeter grenade launcher, shooting those down the street. And that's when I looked over and saw couple of friends of mine on the other side of the street shooting and the east side of the street was more lit i think with the sun and everything and i they seemed to take it more than we did on our side Mm -hmm. of the street at the time Mm -hmm. and uh, i look back and i see two of my friends dragging another guy lifeless body earl had just got (laughs) shot in the head Mm -hmm. and uh that was that was the last movement he ever made and that's as far as they pushed forward they had to hold up there they took so many casualties our side we pushed down further all the way to the crash site and uh we took the house. There was a four-way intersection. Helicopters crashed on the eastern side. And,
0: and I'm sorry, is this a residential area? Or is the it... residential,
1: yeah. Cr- so there's... People everywhere. Oh, my gosh. There's people everywhere. There's and militia everywhere. Militia, people, women, just kids people. just popping in. And I'm like, what are these people doing? If I hear gunfire, I'm, I'm getting out of here. Oh, my God. I guess they're so used to... I, it I mean, it's,
0: yeah, is it just a way of life? Yeah, like yeah. yeah. Oh, that's
1: and just... and it's, That's the weird stuff. Yeah. The, the things that aren't natural. I mean, it's natural to see people get shot in combat, I guess, but... It's not natural to see people calmly walking around and see what's going on. And you got to deal with them too, but yeah. you just don't have time to deal with them. You have to just get them out of the way, you know, cause those are, those are the people that get you killed. So we had to take those two houses down. I, our house had a family of probably six, six kids up to, you know, low teens and two adult females and one adult male. Mm. And we cuffed the adult male, put them in the corner. And left all the women and sitting with him in the living room, as far back from the shooting as we could, because now they're under our protection. We have to keep them safe. And that was the only rest position you had that night, was guarding those people. That's that's where you got rest. Everybody else was in a window or a door outside mm-hmm. around the building. And that's where we spent, you know, the next 16, 18 hours, basically, um, just keeping people away from the helicopter <clears throat> and then... The convoy can't get to us. They keep trying to get to us, but they don't know where we're at. The helicopter's calling down on the radio, turn right now. And by the time they got that com- communications, they were already past it. Oh, so man. now they're getting lost over and over again. Getting yeah, that's it.
0: the other thing we take for granted today. I'm, I'm sure our are oh, way better today.
1: Yeah, or or navigation. You go straight to it. You know, right. Everybody's got a little Blue Force tracker. You know where everybody's at. Oh, Back then, I had no idea where anybody was. Oh, that's crazy. So before you shoot, you have to figure out, okay, well, you do anyway, but... You had to take a little extra care back in the day. All right, are those our people? Are they, you know, before you shoot back? <clears throat> so that I spent the entire night there. Um,
0: and so, just, just for the listeners to understand, again, I mean, this was a 30 to 60 minute op that's now turned into a multi hour. So, your, your gear, I mean, you have hardly not anything, right? Nothing. I mean,
1: you're. I had a little bottle of water. Um, we were light and fast, plastic helmets. I had sewn my own Kevlar. You know, the Army, you you get Kevlar. I'd taken it apart, went to the sew shop and sewed it, the smallest little, you know, like a little Kleenex on my chest, just just to have it. Yeah. And uh, plastic helmets, no night vision, just your weapon, ammo that you needed, and uh, med supplies. So
0: I'm assuming you don't have a ton of ammo ammo for for
1: that long of a fight. So are you,
0: how do you, how did you, how did you guys last that long?
1: Little birds, <laughs> little so birds, mini guns okay. and rocket launchers. Okay. And uh, they were keeping people at bay. We were very selective in our fire. Um, we had a lot of ammunition from the wounded that couldn't use it. We were taken. We still ran out. And then they resupplied us midway through the night with water and ammunition. But back in the day, we didn't prepackage it.
0: Okay.
1: it was, we didn't have a package in magazines and water and, and ruggedized containers that they threw out. So here comes a Black Hawk hovering right over us throwing stuff out they start taking fire from the house right next door to us from the second floor and that's where a friend of mine got shot in the face Mm -hmm. throwing stuff out and as it hits the road it's exploding into the dirt right in front of our building and it's like okay i'm the younger guy on the team hey tom you gotta go get that and i'm like that's great and i can't wait when you
0: say exploding you mean just
1: just just the boxes yeah the boxes tearing apart ammo laying everywhere the water just hitting and dumping and so now it's my turn to go out on the street and I go out there, I'm scooping up ammunition and running it back in, go back to scoop up more ammunition, run it back in, water, run it back in. And it's like, okay, the team across the street needs water. I'm like, okay, I'll run it across the street now, you know? So here I am waiting with two five-gallon jugs of water, like, all right, one, two. And the street's, you know, regular-sized dirt, yeah. probably one and a half lanes wide, maybe, in a residential area. I'm like, I'm looking at the front door, kind of waiting to leave the gate. Take off running, you know, as fast as I can carrying two five gallon jugs of water. And it's like slow motion Oh, oh God. up until I get to the door frame of the house that I'm running into at full speed. And my mind's like, what if I get shot by our own guys as I run in, you know? So I run in there yelling, eagle, eagle, eagle. And uh, I don't hear anything. I'm like, am I in the right house? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have no gun. I, I my guns on me, but my hands are full of water. Yeah. And I'm going through this house trying to find the team and I finally find them in the back. They're they're dealing with some people coming up the back alleyway. And I here's your water. I dump it off and I go back in my like, now I gotta go back across the street again. I'm like, this sucks. So made it back. Um But yeah, all night, just different incidences that happened. You know, the, the Rangers out in the corner of the building got hit with an RPG. I had to go out and drag them in. And then then they sent me back out to go get their weapon that was they had an M60 out there. Go find their weapon so nobody uses it. Like, I'm pretty sure it's destroyed, that RPG did, its, did a number on that building. Mm-hmm. Um, got that weapon in there, took care of those Rangers. Um, they're just picking at us all night long. I remember my buddy sitting in a room, pulling guard out the window towards the crash site and north. And I just got up off the bed, he, he sat down, and I was rotating in to guard the, the family. And I turned around to ask him if he needed any water because there was a little pipe dripping water out of the building, you know. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'll throw some iodine tablets in it and I'll fill it up with water and hand it out to people during my break. And I turned around and asked my question and the wall just exploded. Oh, man. Um, and it was full of dust and I saw this red rocket spinning in circles bouncing off things in the room and then lodge underneath the couch and I was just standing there covered in like debris and uh, my 2IC was sitting in a couch in the hallway looking up at me as so I was covered in this stuff. He's like, what was that? I go, I don't know. And then it, then it hit me and I, I yelled, RPG, and I went running into that room. And that rocket, it hit so, so close that the rocket hadn't burned out and it was still spinning around the room and it caught the couch on fire. I'm trying to find my buddy in this debris, this dust-filled room in the dark. And uh, I found this, I thought it was his leg, and I went to pull it and he comes up, just uh, and knocked out of him, just, just wailing, you know? And I drug him out, put him in the other room and shut that door. I was like, now that we have this huge hole in this house, so I just shut the door for a bit. Wait, did I, the RPG... Of, it knocked makes... the whole wall down.
0: But did it explode? I mean,
1: it was still... Oh, no, it exploded. Oh, okay. Blew the wall. But RPG is like a, a, a shape charge. It's designed for metal. Right. It'll punch a hole through metal. So when it hits concrete or dirt, it, it does some damage, but it really absorbed it all. So he just <laughs> got a little shock knocked into him. You know, he wasn't injured. He laid there for like an hour or so and recovered and he was back at it, but... I shut the door and I'm standing there and I notice 20 minutes later there's a red glow coming underneath the door and I'm like, "Like, what's going on in there? And I open the door and the couch is on fire. And the whole room's full of smoke. I'm like, this is not good.
0: Yeah.
1: I was worried about the light drawing attention to where we were anyway.
0: Was the family in there still? No, well, the
1: family's in the living room just across the hallway. Like, what's going on with my house, you know? Okay. So I'm trying to find water, flower pots, pouring it on this this couch that's on fire and every time i go in there I'd breathe in that, that smoke and the, the chemicals from the couch. Who knows who makes that over there? i'd go outside throw up come in get some more water Jeez. pour it out go outside throw up come back in finally put that fire out and that's when i started walking around the house laying mattresses up against the walls because i knew that it stopped it but now let's stop the debris and uh i just finished laying a mattress up on one of the other walls that a buddy of mine was sitting at and he's like what are you doing i'm like it's just a little more protection you know i would turn around and walked out and that wall got hit right after i put that mattress up and and uh he came out and he's like, that, was a ch- that worked like a champ, you know. Stopped everything from flying in. They were just nitpicking our house all night long, just destroying it little by little, trying to sneak up on us the whole night, you know. I literally had one guy, as I was pulling guards, sitting on a bed, looking to the west. There's a house about three feet across and just a little dirt way between. And every now and then I hear men in there yelling and you can hear them with their weapons and stuff. And I just shoot through the wooden shutters, trying to keep them away. And I was sitting there, and there was bars on our windows as well. And uh, I heard this clicking and dragging noise, like me- metallic and wood. And then I'd hear a dragging noise, and I'm like, you know, I didn't have ear protection in, yeah. so I'm half deaf anyway. And I, I look out, and without night vision, I saw this this guy in, like, a man dress. Put his AK in front of him and drag himself forward as he's creeping up on my window. And I'm like, Ooh. This is not cool. So I try. I couldn't get my M4 out the window to shoot at that angle. So I'm thinking, okay, it's pistol time. I finally get to use my pistol. You know, pull my 45 out and I stick my arm to the bar, and I'm gonna, you know, get rid of his, you know, get rid of this issue. And um, I pull the trigger and the hammer falls and it's so full of sand, from the rotor wash, that the hammer only halfway falls. I'm like, I'm like, okay, nothing. Else, what else can go wrong? Yeah. So I recocked the, the the 45 and put it on the bed. I'm like. I'm like, oh, yeah, we got these little Austrian grenades, these little small ones, you know. I pulled it out and showed the guy standing at the door, and I pulled the pin, and he's going, no, no. And I'm like, Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I stuck my hand out the window again, and he's right underneath it now. And I dropped it, and I hit him on the head, and as it hit him, he looked up like, what is that? And it rolled down into his little uh, scarf area. And I just laid over on the bed, and boom, and everything just kind of hits the ceiling inside. Everything blows in our room. And um, it's funny, it wasn't the first person I'd killed, but it's not funny that's a bad word but it's, it's odd that when you do your job and you take a life the first thing is in your mind is I'm in trouble you know I'm gonna get in trouble hmm. people came running in the room what was that what was that I'm like oh it was a flashbang like just a distraction device yeah and the guy the guy in the room with me standing there going no he's not he's lying that was a grenade I'm like, yeah, you're right. It was a grenade. Look at this dude, you know? <laughs> and like, oh, hey, good job. You but know? your
0: reaction was to tell a white lie. Yeah,
1: like, uh, is- I'm going to get in trouble for that, you know? And it, it was weird. Um, so that went on. It became the longest sustained firefight since Vietnam at, at the time. I think there's been one longer now in Afghanistan, maybe, um, or maybe Iraq. I'm not sure, but 18 hours. It lasted uh, a little over 18 hours.
0: Oh, man. So, I, I mean, I. I you're not sleeping at all during any of that. No, mention. we were
1: we were dehydrated, <clears throat> suffering from severe sleep deprivation. And
0: so, how did you guys finally get out?
1: They finally made it to us just before light out, and um, two of the two or three of the Pakistani armored vehicles had made it, and they were using one. And the 10th Mountain Group was with them, so we had more more numbers now, and they're, they they kind of secured the area. They're out there walking around like it's normal. I'm like, you guys, trust me, we've been here all night. It's not cool to be walking out in the streets, but they're in force. You know, maybe they pushed everything back. They used the vehicle to pull the helicopter off of the pilots because they'd been thrown through the windshield and they were underneath it and we couldn't get their bodies Mm -hmm. out and we weren't leaving without them. So Mm -hmm. finally pulled that off, um, got the bodies on top, got the wounded inside, and it was time to leave and uh, put some thermite on the helicopter to destroy it. And then we had a, a, a... the and Apache that was going to also fly in and hit it with rockets on our way out to keep everybody back and um, open up the back of the armored personnel carrier to get in and it was just so full of wounded. the guy just actually grabbed the door and pulled it shut again mm. and, and you see the latch go and shut it and I'm like, well there's no room in there, man yeah. like we're gonna have to follow them. We'll just follow along the vehicles on foot on foot wow. whoever whoever didn't get in and uh, we'll use the vehicles as cover and we'll just, we'll we'll run back that mile to where where everyone else is. And uh, those vehicles took off. (laughs) They just took off, miscommunication. So we're like, all right, let's do this. We just start running back in the same direction we came. And uh, all along the way, I remember passing our vehicle. It was an old Humvee that we had built. It was just a cargo Humvee, not armored or anything. Mm -hmm. And we had taken sandbags in the back and lined up a wall and put three-quarter-inch plywood on both sides of it to hold the sandbags in. And use like zip ties to hold that together. And we sat inside that. And we built a bench inside for either wounded or to sit on. And we're sitting on that facing out. And uh, I saw that sitting on the side of the road with a hole in it. It was burnt out. And I remember thinking, I wonder what happened to my buddy that was driving it. You mm-hmm. know, um, He's dead. I didn't know it at the time. Mm-hmm. But um turned the corner to go back west. And I remember stopping at one point to watch the, the, the uh, Cobra or Apache, whatever it was, launch a rocket at the helicopter. I want to see what that did, you know. And uh, he was hovering, didn't really do it. I'm like, I got to go. I don't know what I'm doing. I turn around and everybody's gone. And I had this sinking feeling of now I'm here. Now I'm all alone, you know. So I just took off running and down you know, the street. what time of day is this again uh, at this point? Maybe, was well, light out, maybe 7 or 8 in the morning. In the morning, okay. And uh, I just took off running. And as I got running along these walls, there, there's walls everywhere. You can never get off the street unless you live there, you know. There's gates and walls and you're just kind of contained into the street. And I'm just running hoping if I get up and look down an intersection, I'll see a group of guys running, you know, and as I, as I run up, there's one little alcove that I didn't see. And and one of the guys that was with us on the team jumped out, grabbed me, and threw me in there with the rest of the team, right as an RPG hit the wall. He didn't do it because the RPG was coming. He just, he saw me coming and he jumped out to to grab me. They pushed me in there and RPG hits the wall and it kind of just the, the shrapnel that cut his ear and kind of deafened him a little bit. Um, but that's all that happened to him and we finally made it all the way back to where the other vehicles were and it was just kind of chaos trying to figure out who's going to get in where and the plan was i didn't know it at the time i just knew i was going to get in a vehicle and go somewhere was to go to the pakistani stadium which was maybe another mile away closer mm-hmm. downtown and two guys from my team and two guys from another team loaded up in one humvee with some 10th mountain guys who were just shooting duck down shooting into the city you know Jesus. i'm like what are you guys doing aiming something you know and uh Tanks are shooting down the street at, at people, and, and and our two Humvees took off. I, I'm thinking well, they know what they're doing, right? right? So they take off, and we're taking fire, and everybody's just just engaging back all along the way. And uh, there's tires burning, and they start to slow down. I'm like, don't stop, don't stop for anything. Just ram that. you The second you stop, or they try to divert you to where they want you to go, I'm just just go through it. Yeah. And at some point along the way, the shooting just kind of stopped. You know. Um, you're in good clan area now. I think it was mm-hmm. 4 October Road, mm-hmm. it was a demarcation line between good clan and bad clan. That we, quickly? Yeah. yeah, it was weird. And we just crossed that line, and everybody's still looking for, for things. Nobody trusts anybody now. And we drove all the way back to the back gate of the airfield. We get in the back gate, and we stop, and we sit there, and our radios are dead. They've been on all night, so they're dead. No radio traffic. We're waiting to see if the convoy's coming behind us. I hadn't seen the convoy in a while. We sat there maybe 20 minutes nobody came so I was like really worried like what happened so we drove around the airfield got back towards our hangar and that's when I noticed I don't know 10 to 12 US soldiers lined up in the side of the street covered up Mm. one of them had an RPG sticking out of his side that wasn't detonated he was Mm. sandbagged around him because he he got shot at such a close distance it didn't have time to arm so it's kind of like getting shot with a harpoon Mm. you know Um, I I didn't look at faces I, I I couldn't do it I was looking at boots I could tell uniforms I'm like man it's not good you know I don't know where everybody's at at all got back to the hangar and nobody was there there's vehicles everywhere covered in blood there's blood all over the ground I remember the smell of bleach and heat and sand mixed together as they used the sand to try to soak it up and the bleach to clean it out and it was everywhere and uh I just went and started loading up my ammo getting some water grab my night vision in case you know it went longer again it's like when are we going back out who we got to go get and uh like, just stand fast. The other guys went to the Pakistani stadium. They're supposed to take Helos back. Why'd you come here? I'm like, I don't know. I got in the back of the vehicle and took off. <laughs> I didn't have the plan. I was like six guys on our team. I was number five, you know. I had just gotten there. And number six was with me. So I had and no sorry, leadership.
0: You're at, you said you're at the hangar right now?
1: I'm at the hangar where we've been the whole time and we've lived.
0: Okay. Okay. So you're back at sort
1: of... Back at home, kind of yeah. safe. Um, so we waited and maybe... An hour later, helicopters started coming in, started bringing in guys from the Pakistani stadium and dropping them off. Came back, and that's when we started getting the numbers of you know, dead and wounded, and something like 90, 98 wounded and eighteen KIA.
0: Um, what what's the I mean, what's the mood like? How do you? It's it's so hard for me to even fathom how you even, like, what do you do? You go to bed. Yeah, you, you go to. You, need clean to talk it out to you. you
1: clean weapons. You um, clean weapons. Usually, it's high fives and hey, that was awesome, and everything went great. You know, did you see that guy run? Did you see what I did? You know, and this time it was quiet. It was a lot of angry people. Um, a lot of people were cleaning their weapons and getting ready to go back, loading up ammo. Um, and then we started asking questions like, "Where's so and so? Have you seen so and so? He got wounded. He's in the hospital. He, you know, or he's dead, or he's over here. Or we don't know. You mm-hmm. know." find out Gary and Randy's missing, you know. Um, there was another helicopter shot down. So I was like, what? Mm. Then we started watching the news. And that's where I, I, I learned a lot was from watching the TV. We had a little room with a TV in it back in the back of the hangar. And I started watching the news. I'm like, ooh, I better watch. wives are freaking out right now, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and no conversation. Back, back in the day, we had one satellite phone. You couldn't really use it to call home at all anyway. Um, just trying to figure out, how do I I'm tell sur- my wife?
0: I'm surprised we got the news out that quickly, but...
1: Yeah, there was a lot of news crews over there okay. um, running around. I don't know what country they were from, but definitely not U.S. But but yeah, it was already it was already on the news. Huh. Um,
0: so are you, are you in contact with family back home? Or do you can you? No,
1: they're they're. Uh, what they were told was no news is good news. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you don't hear anything, that means your husband's probably okay. But years later, and with my wife working with other people, you find out like uh, Carmen Gordon waited for days to find out what happened to her husband because he was missing is he dead or not we don't really know so he's missing so yeah. um, to hear her story my wife's got a book hopefully coming out um, talking with Carmen and other wives of what they went through and uh, sitting on her front porch every day you know somebody would show up and bring her a McMuffin and a coffee and let sit and just talk you know and then uh, I guess finally one day she got guys in uniform show up mm-hmm. you know but to hear her story um, they they delivered them, a couple of them back in garbage bags. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I mean, you saw on TV, I think, in the day of them dragging bodies through the streets and stuff. They burned them, chopped them up, and uh, we got them in garbage bags. And so, for years, I think, in one of her stories, she talked about how she didn't throw any of his items away until maybe a couple of years ago. And her her point was, I never want anything that he owned to go in a garbage bag, because mm-hmm. that's what he was in. You know, mm-hmm. it was just sad but, uh, yeah, it was horrible. No, I finally got to call home um, days later. Just say, hey, everything's all right. You know, It's horrible. Can't say anything anyway. Right. You know? um, I'm
0: sure just hearing your voice just, was I'm enough. good. Yeah.
1: Don't worry about it. You know, I don't think we're going out again. I don't, <laughs> we don't have enough people to go out again, so there's another squadron on the way. So
0: <clears throat> we went a lot longer on that whole story than I initially thought we would, but that was so compelling and kind of walked us through I every mean, day I, I can't even again I, it's, it's hard to even grasp what you guys went through and um, so now you're in a place where obviously you've dealt with a lot of trauma and um, when did you find out that you were really struggling with some PTSD stuff
1: oh you know it's probably after I almost killed myself I uh I just figured it's normal I was angry. Um, time had gone by; it'd been about twenty years.
0: So you're out of the service at this point.
1: I'm out of the service. Um, you know, I spent twenty years in the unit, uh, twenty five total in the army, and uh, I just did my job. You know, I was more angry. I didn't know it at the time, but talking to people that knew me back then, that know me now, they're like you're so different. Your your mm-hmm. face has changed. Your whole life has changed. Your body's mm-hmm. changed. Um, your personality's changed. I guess like, who I was before, but they met me after that and it was just I was angry very serious you know everything's a life changing event you know Mm -hmm. there's there's a dish in the sink I freak out you know because somebody's gonna die because of that I wanna and I'm only finding out here recently that that's my coping mechanism is to be rigid from rigidity to chaos is where I feel safe it's like I'm rigid about everything that's my form of control and that's how my brain which perceives everything to be a threat feels safe is to control everything
0: because everything's
1: gotta be perfect you know it's gotta be perfect just right the way it's supposed to be and there's a reason for it and it better be that way the dishes are supposed to be in the counter it's supposed to be rents when you're done Yeah, it was just it was a horrible person I was angry um and then maybe four years ago we were still doing some training in uh, Ohio and uh I was divorcing. I mean, it was, it was evident. You know, I was separated. I started living in another bedroom in my house for six months and then moved to a hotel for six months and then finally got an apartment for a year. And, uh, just a slow breakup of just, you know, I was miserable. And, uh, just stick, sticking around for my son at the time, you know, which was worse even for him probably. And, uh, We'd done training in Akron, Ohio and, uh, we're finished. We're supposed to meet in the hotel lobby and talk about it later and have some drinks. And I, I parked in the parking garage and guys jump out of the car. Like, I'll be in a minute. I'm like, just go through some paperwork. And I don't even know what, I didn't plan it. You know, I didn't think about it. And I just, I was done. I was like,
0: this Just an instant this is it.
1: You know, I, I, I was miserable. The day was like uh, one of these days, what am I doing here? You know, why am I doing this? And I had my four, I have my pistol with me. Um, and I was like, started thinking, I put it in my lap and I started thinking about, all right, do I put it in my mouth or do I put it in the side of my head? Because I've heard stories like shotguns, you put in your mouth and you, the pressure pushes your face back before the bullet actually hits you. So, you know, you blow back and you hit part of your face and now you're a vegetable and people have to take care of you. And I'm like, I don't want to screw this up. So I did it the side of my head, do I pull it away an inch or two or do I put it right on there? And, and then my phone vibrates and it kind of scared me. And uh, it was a text saying, hey, we're all in the lobby, are you coming? And it was from one of the camera crew. And I'm like, oh God, I'm late you know now I'm back to me I'm late put my gun away I'm like what was I doing I didn't really think about it you know
0: were you on any kind of medication or anything at the time
1: (sighs) Mm. probably
0: I mean the fact that you went from just being another typical miserable day to I'm out I'm done to oh I'm late
1: I guess I was miserable I was probably on Prozac at the time or maybe I'd stop taking it. I don't I don't remember anymore. I was doing a lot of drinking. A lot of drinking. Um obviously not during the day, but uh every night. So my you know, it probably it carries over, you know, your performance and, and uh was gaining weight. I mean I was unhappy.
0: Not in a good place, clearly. No,
1: no. And uh so I go down yeah. the lobby, met up with everybody, um and the person who texts me is my wife now, you yeah. know. Oh, um, that's
0: tired. <laughs> Your, uh, your, your Facebook page is, is, it's great. I mean, it's just you and her, and I'm like, man, this is, for somebody who's been through as much as you've been through, it's, uh, you're living a love story right now, and it's pretty cool. It's all her,
1: and it's not perfect. You know, everybody on Facebook is of perfect. It's, it's not perfect. I have a lot of issues daily that I still work with, but, and I get a lot of flack from some of my friends who just are resistant to culture change, but they don't realize they're still in the culture of killing and hate and anger and holding on to it um i get a lot of messages on there like oh are you hanging out a lot of your hippie friends or man you sure are changed are you drinking the kool-aid i'm like you know what i see all these 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 posts from friends of mine who are the same job as mine or whatever you know. and they're like you snowflake libtards blah 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 sheeple you flock of sheep just following and i'm like you know what aren't we all just sheep in a different flock mm-hmm. and we're defending our own flock i mean can't you step outside of that and think that there's other ways to solve problems and to think that you haven't been taught yet. I mean,
0: just a different perspective, right?
1: I mean, stop attacking each other because of what you believe in and this and that. To fall on your sword for everything every day is just ridiculous. And it's just that anger. I just got back from Fayetteville. Um, I was doing some business there. I got back yesterday. And so night before last, I'm in a restaurant in Fayetteville where I used to hang out, you know, it's like a bar restaurant. And, um, Place is packed. I'm looking around the room like I used to know people here. Now it's just all young kids. And I, and I went to the bathroom and in the, and I'm listening to this song in the bathroom playing, and it, I remember sending my wife a text. The the words to the song were like, basically you know kill. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna rock it tonight. It's just hard heavy metal. I'm like this is the culture that, that they live in. That they just it's perpetuating it. Off duty, on duty, you know after hours. It's it's always there. I'm like, wow, I never would have noticed this song before, other than, oh, this is gonna get me motivated to go out and kill people. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, man, this song is violent and evil, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's just weird. That's but,
0: uh, uh that's quite a change of tune from where you were. Yeah. What 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 do you attribute that to?
1: My wife. <laughs> Literally my wife making me realize that I was that screwed up mm-hmm. that uh that everything I held dear and the fact that my, my brain thinks everything's a threat, which means I attack it, you know? And when I when I do talk to people, even when I work sometimes, it's like, if, if I get a little resistance back and I don't agree with it, I'll start elevating my voice and I try to take over the situation and command everything. And it's like, she's like, what are you doing? I'm not your soldier, you know? Yeah. You yelled at that guy on the phone, I'm like, was I yelling? I, I wasn't yelling, it's just business, you know? But no, I was I was elevating it, you know, without without need, really. it's just respect mm-hmm. respect for yourself and other people i started learning that you know you have to respect yourself first which I did not mm. I did not respect myself I didn't like myself I didn't prior like
0: prior to military service or no after after just
1: just the PTSD is basically you don't like yourself you don't like who you're becoming you don't like your symptoms you don't like anything which means I can't like anybody else right. you know so I started letting go of that started appreciating what I did more which made me want to change and be better and do more and everybody I talk to now that's healthy and helping other people went through the same process you know they're like why are we always fighting and arguing and and, and killing people it's not normal it's what I did and if somebody ever comes and tries to mess with my family they're gonna they're gonna find something very difficult in the way but I don't need to argue every day and and put on that persona every day Mm -hmm. it's just it's ridiculous (laughs) really (laughs) so so
0: was it really Jen then that sort of Crack that for you and, and or and part of the reason why I'm asking this is because um, people who might be listening who either have PTSD or have loved ones that that are you know have it um, my brother was hiking in the mountains not too long ago and and I had a friend slipping. and fall to his death and you know or, or women who have dealt with rape and I mean that's incredibly traumatic yeah. so there's a lot of people I think out there outside of just the military sure I mean a lot of times I think of PTSD as military related but no. trauma is trauma right
1: I, so, I read that in a book uh, I got an audio book called heal your PTSD I was listening to yesterday for five hours at the airport yeah. all exactly what you just said Yeah. and it's always been that way trauma is trauma pain is pain people are like I'm so sorry about your back you've had so many back surgeries I'm like doesn't matter if I got blown up or picked up a quarter and pulled a muscle. It's, it's pain. Yeah. It doesn't matter how you got it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And PTSD is just a, a normal reaction to an unnormal experience.
0: That's such a great definition because I think a lot of people, I've talked to some of the guys down at asymmetric solutions or whoever else, and we've had these conversations and it seems like they think that it's this unique, special thing or that they're wrong for it or it's some kind of disease or it's
1: a right no it's, it's absolutely normal
0: total normal I would dare say even say healthy coping mechanism for something that is almost inprocessible yeah, yeah an experience that is it, outside of yeah
1: it normal. absolutely is um and I keep saying PTSD we're trying to switch to PTS because to call it a disorder means there's something wrong with you when it's a natural I reaction, like you know. So yeah. I, even I do it, and why? It's like no, it's PTSD. Don't call it disorder. I
0: like that.
1: Some people are worried about calling it a disorder, so they don't, you know, they're going to take my guns away. Or no, it's just mm-hmm. it's not a disorder. It's a it's a natural reaction to an, an unhealthy event. Whether it's your friend sees his buddy slip and fall, or you see a car wreck, or a kid get killed, or mm-hmm. anything, mm-hmm. anything. Firefighters, you know, all first responders, nurses, doctors, they see it every day. Every you day. don't get used to it. You don't get used to it, it's not natural. But it's your brain that it develops. PTS develops when you are put into a situation where you feel you can't control it. You can't control the situation. So your brain wants to defend itself. So your sympathetic nervous system starts pumping in cortisol and everything else that you know to deal with stress. And then it happens so much that it's a habit. And so now I'm angry, now I'm grumpy, now I think everything's a threat. I perpetuate that every day, now it's a habit. Mm-hmm. Now I just taught myself to stay this way for years. Mm-hmm. Versus whenever a thought enters my head or something that's just wrong and I know it's wrong or I start to act a certain way to stop, remove myself, go to something totally different that's healthy and happy and do that for five to 30 minutes. I just change those, those brain patterns. Some guys that don't know, somebody, I read a statement Well, yesterday that when people tell you to get over it, oh, you have PTS, get over it. It's like, okay, basically what they're really saying is I don't know enough about PTS to help you. Yeah. Because you can't get over PTS any, any quicker than you can get over strep throat. you know? Yeah. Just get over your strep throat. It's the same thing. Your brain uses the most energy in your body than anything else. And what do we do, what do, we do with PTSD? Well, oh, we start drinking. We start eating unhealthy at the bar. We start going out. Everything's unhealthy. Well, your brain gets all that from your gut, mm-hmm. you know? So now your brain, with the healthy food and not as much drinking or, or drugs, is healthy. You can deal with it, but we perpetuate it by drinking more, by eating poorly. We stop working out, we feel depressed, and now your brain's like, well, everything's a threat. I'm gonna defend you by putting up <laughs> this wall, you know?
0: So how do, you, how do you break that pattern? What's the what's the quickest, most efficient way mm. to...
1: It's not quick. <laughs> it's not quick. I'm still trying it. Um, basically, eat healthy, stay active, become part of the tribe again so you feel relevant and where worthy.
0: Can, where can somebody get connected to the tribe? Hmm. Is there, I mean, is there like a, are there different...
1: Well, there's actually a book called The Tribe out there that okay. a congressman gave me up at, uh, in D.C. Uh, when we were up there, what, in November? and the author had given it to him and he he gave it to me and basically the tribe is about that mentality of you belong to something and you're productive Mm -hmm. Um, like you were talking about rite of passages earlier Um, if you don't a lot of tribes have a rite of passage to become a man you have to do something and now your job in this tribe is to contribute here and there when you don't feel like you're part of that tribe you start to feel worthless and you don't belong Mm -hmm. and therefore you don't need to exist Mm -hmm. and then you go down that hill Mm -hmm. talking is really the only way to get it out it's like dumping poison out of your body like maybe eight months after I got the text from Jen we started dating and I flew here to St. Louis from Savannah we were a street side cafe in town somewhere and she's like tell me about Somalia I was like wow it's been 20 years you just want to know about it huh and she's like well yeah I know one of the guys we work with said you were in Somalia and I don't know much about it other than when she was growing up as a kid she remembered standing in her you know mom's kitchen watching it on TV with like mm-hmm. just with her hand over her mouth, like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Little did she know that she would meet me and I was there. She wanted to know about it. I started talking about it and just started bawling. I mm-hmm. <laughs> just literally started bawling on the street. I'm trying to hide my face. I'm like, stop it, what are you doing? People are looking at me. She's like, That's fine. I'm like, no, it's not. Crying's wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just kept crying and then the more I talked about it, the less the less I, the less it bothered me. Um, even when I first started speaking events and engagements here recently. I would cry on stage trying to get through some things and reliving uh, memories and the more I talk about it the easier it gets and you're letting it go and I kind of equate it to dumping the poison out I tell everybody you know get over that cultural suicide the drinking the chasing women the living the lifestyle that you think you're supposed to live it's just all wrong it's lack of respect for yourself and other people cut down the drinking or stop all you know I'm not saying stop drinking altogether that's a whole another world right there for people Um, cut down eat healthy move do something to be part of something else if you don't it's your fault you know anything in the world you can do like tony v we were talking about you know um great speakers and tony robbins and and tony v i think they're actually i saw a billboard in denver recently there's three great speakers it was tony robbins and tony v and and a third one that are going i was like that's got to be expensive but those guys know that just do it. Yeah. Just go out and do it. The only limiting factor is yourself. Yeah. And when we start to limit ourselves. We don't realize it's our brain doing it to us, and we're allowing it.
0: <clears throat> well, I think it's a it's a really healing message too to let people know that that it is okay, that it is um, that they're not um, wrong for feeling those feelings no, in the first place. Not. Yeah. But that that yes, that there is a point where you can sort of exhale and go, "Is this really serving me anymore? Is this?" Make it, is this enriching my life? And finding other people who are who have gone through that or are still feeling through it, like finding that brotherhood and that tribe, I think, you know, I, this is kind of silly for even me to say, but just in my own experience, in my own ups and downs, it's there's a radical difference between trying to face it alone. As, oh, really? As men, we typically do that.
1: Right. Versus
0: <laughs> seeking out some other... Brothers in the process and
1: it's like asking for directions, you know. <laughs> just just do it. <laughs> You're gonna drive around forever until you do it anyway. Right. So <laughs>
0: have some humility and yeah. Well, you know, you talked about the rigidity and and I think yeah, when I think of rigidity, I think of like a dead branch, like mm-hmm. a stick. And how easy is it to break that? Right. It doesn't take much to break it, but if you get a live, bendable uh, branch. That's tough as a motherfucker to pull right. those things off, right? right? And, and I think that's a good metaphor for people to think about because the – especially as men, especially as military veterans who have dealt with God knows what but that are in that rigid state where anything outside of that control becomes a threat and and they're angry, it's, it's too easy to break. Right. Whereas when you learn the flexibility, you learn the vulnerability, you learn – the processing of the crying to, to, there was a saying in, in well, a personal development program that I went to said uh, cl- crying is cleansing yeah you know it's like the, the cleaner on your oven it's just get all that shit out
1: yeah it, it really is the more I cried the the better I felt and the less I started crying yeah I mean I I, I was still to a point where if I watch uh Home improvement shows where they fix people's houses up, and at the end they reveal it. And I'm like, oh, huh, it's so nice. It starts to get emotional. I'm like, what am I doing? I literally posted that that's a funny. week ago, and I had a lot of people hit me up. I do too. Give me a call. And I'm like, yeah, I'll call you. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Everybody's going through it, you know. Well, we're human beings. Yeah. We're meant to be emotional, and that's okay. And
0: and you're Delta Force, and saying it's okay to cry. I mean, what? Who else would be a better uh, spokesperson to say this is this is part of life? And it's okay. Uh, I think that's an important message. So we are getting a little bit short on time. I know you need to get going here. Tell um, the listeners a little bit about your foundation that you and Jen started and and how people can help support that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got two things going now. Um, All Secure Foundation is our nonprofit. We filed our paperwork. We're waiting on waiting getting back our 501c3. Um, it should be pretty quick since it's for veterans. They say they push them through quicker. Um, then we'll be able to take donations. We've got a lot of... Um, and that's all securefoundation.org. and it's on Facebook as well. But, um, a lot of people lined up to, to donate. People are donating land, houses, their services, money as well. Um, I'm obviously not taking money yet because it's not a tax write off yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're a resource library to help veterans find help because when you're, when you're sick and you need help and your wife's, your wife needs help too. Your family needs help too. So, when Jen was trying to find me help, it was so difficult to find the right doctors or doctors that take TRICARE or where do I go? Who understands this? Especially here in, in St. Louis where it's not a big military presence. TRICARE is a little bit hard to find, which is what I have covered, you know. Um, and then I went to a couple and they just didn't have it. They just didn't really understand where I was coming from. And I don't I don't really know why. But um, we've teamed up with a lot of other organizations like Where is Hard or Station Foundation or Reboot Colorado all throughout the nation to where okay what's your problem they'll call us up what's your issue what's going on and they're always the same anyway they're literally always the same yeah. the family issues I, know, I mistreat my kids my wife I'm angry I, I hurt I'm out of shape okay let's get going um, we'll place them in, in where they need to go Okay. that way they don't have to do the work and then only after you get help you're doing better and you turn in turn come back and help us help other people then we look at giving you like a vacation for it like instead of just bringing you in and go fishing or hunting or shooting or or whatever or send you and your family to Disney which is probably the worst thing to do with a guy with PTSD send them to Disney is to get them help first Mm -hmm. and then give them something because if not it's just a vacation and you come back home and now you still have the problems to Mm -hmm. deal with Mm -hmm. and it's not like uh, I sent a friend of mine I got him a $70,000 grant to go to Warrior's Heart Big addiction place. He had more addictions than I knew about. Hmm. Illicit heavy drugs. Um, I worked with him for years and didn't know it. Alcohol, everything. And he had just reached bottom. Got him some funding from a local uh, company here, actually, Kolb Grading. Jeff Kolb uh, footed that bill with his his foundation. Sent him to Warrior's Heart from, I think, 12 weeks. Got him detoxed, cleaned up, got him a whole new set of teeth. I mean, he and he has been nothing but a pit bull in helping people get better now, and he's stuck with it. A lot that's of people are right. going to relapse. Um, he hasn't, and he stays with it, and he helps other people, and I think that's the difference. He, I call him up, put him on a mission, and he's on it. He'll get somebody where he needs to go as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's a real light of hope for a lot of people that have PTS is that, that it might feel crushing, um, but if you can just have a glimpse of how you can... Rise up and and learn to cope and learn to live with that and and eventually be free from it. That you can turn around and help somebody else. Absolutely. I mean, what what greater purpose could there be to help lift somebody out of that?
1: It's like AA. If you go to AA, you're you're there for life. Yeah. You have to do it every day, every week, whatever they do. Some people have to do it every day. Yeah. Some people stop going and they're okay. But you you have to do what what you need. You know. And then we we've recently started all secure mission where it's it's a for-profit but it's very low and it's online courses for reintegration of the family or you know pts or video courses and video and and documents you can download it getting fit getting healthy diets things like that we have uh, psychologists and and people contributing to help with papers so you can say between $59 and $200 whatever course it is and then you come in you take the course you can download you I don't care if you share it we don't care you know other people like well don't do something so they can't share it. You're mm-hmm. going to lose money. I'm like, it's not really about that. Yeah, You know, I, I have to nice. offset some costs here, but it's to get cost-effective ways to help people. They yeah. can take it on the road with them. They can deploy with it. They can share it with their friends. We don't care. Yeah. Um. But we just want to help people. We make other money doing other things, you know, writing a book, doing speak engagements. And plus, I have a job. So, you know, just staying busy. But we just want to help and we want to recruit more people along the way to help us help other people.
0: What what can the average do? Uh, average person do to help? Uh, so they can donate, obviously. But it are there opportunities to to talk with people to help
1: talk oh, through yeah. things? I mean, yeah. is that absolutely? We've got I've got friends from different states and people I don't even know that are interested. To say, I want to open up a chapter here. I'm like, okay, well, we have to vet you first to make sure that everything's good to go, and then make sure you're preaching the same mission. Because I've seen some organizations make money selling T-shirts with booze on them and guns and girls. It's like Okay, you're still pushing the same culture. Yeah, like I want to get away from that. I want to get away to healthier, happier kind of things. So if I sell a shirt, it's going to be something different, I'm not a shirt with skulls and crossbones on it, you know, which the military likes because it looks cool. But you're still staying in the same the same culture, you know. I've told a couple of companies like, now I don't like the message you're sending. Mm-hmm. I don't like the misogynistic slash cultural message that you're sending. We want to go down a different path of of respect and healthy, happy people. And I know it's weird to say it for you killers out there that, that, um, think that being a man means, you know, I can go kill, I can go on a mission and I, I don't have emotions. It's not what a man is. You know, um, you'd asked me earlier, or you talk about what's it like to be a, what's your definition of a man? It's probably the toughest question with the easiest answer. You're, you're born a man. Mm-hmm. You did nothing to become a man. That's science. I'm more down the path of what does it take to be a good person? Mm-hmm you know mm-hmm. respect understanding listening giving in alright well I'm not always right I'm I'm, I'm never always right ever <laughs> I'm quite wrong a lot of times I will spit some things out that sound good and somebody will tell me something different I'm like okay you're right you're right I'm wrong I feel, I like, have no I feel problem. like that's
0: Jen coming through a little bit Yeah, I have,
1: I've learned to have no problem with being wrong because yeah. everybody's wrong I, I, I tell people in the rooms raise your hand if you've never failed before yeah. because my message is the greatest failure is a fair to try raise your hand if you've never failed because that is what you need to do in life to get better you yeah. have to fail mm-hmm. you learn how to fix it and you keep going greatest failure is fair to try and you never quit and you'll, you can be anything you work hard at you know, growing up, your parents you can be anything you want to be. Like they didn't tell you the the difficult part. Yes. You have to work at it. Yes, you can't just grow up and be something. Yeah. You know, I want to be an astronaut. That's great. Yeah. Okay, there's a lot of work to do yeah. before you can become an astronaut. So you have to work at it. Um, people can people can uh, hit us up online or on Facebook or, or find me on Facebook. If not, All Secure Mission or All Secure Foundation hit us up and tell us your ideas because I can't be everywhere I'm going to start bringing in other people to help speak open up other other places because it's that close-knit community that the, the veterans have that they all say they miss mm-hmm. talking to someone who understands him I'm like everybody would understand you if you didn't tell the story like there I was shooting this guy in the face and stabbing people and blood everywhere of course people are like, whoa, whoa whoa you know yeah. you don't need to glorify it because there's nothing glorious about war it's no. horrible um, all the loss and the families that are affected that are that live over there, all the innocent families that have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. They, they're ten, twenty years after that fact of, you know, I don't know how long it took to build up Germany—twenty-two, three, twenty-four years—to mm-hmm. even start getting construction back up. And mm-hmm. I mean, think of these other countries that aren't as squared away as Germany was back in the day: yeah. Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia. <laughs> Somalia—they're still, you know, a crappy place to be. I mean, maybe they just got a government, maybe mm-hmm. just recently. Yeah.
0: Well, we are just about out of time, so I just wanted to. You know, one of the things that came to me as I was watching your videos online in, in preparation for this was that you're really still in service. It's oh, not yeah. thank yeah. you for your service as if it's done. You're still in service. And I don't mean just the, the All Secure Foundation, I mean <clears throat> still dealing with the. PTS stuff still working through that still and and obviously you know you're you've gotten to that point where you're now reaching out and and helping others but i say that to anybody that's listening who may be just dealing with PTSD, p or pts sorry uh themselves is thank you thank you for your service thank you for going through all of that shit to uh give us the opportunity to live our lives the way we want to live them i mean it's it's I, I try not to take that for granted but um, it, it's um, it's a true blessing to be able to live in this country and to have people like yourself and, and all your um, brothers that have given their lives for it so it's, I appreciate it yeah
1: I think veterans need to know that um, I hear them I see I read it a lot you know I did this for you I did this so you can live free well you also live here mm-hmm. <laughs> as a veteran you, st- you also live here you did it for yourself as well you know mm-hmm. it people yell a hero i'm like nope servant i'm not a hero you know i did my job i did what i had to do i was trained well so it, that training took over um it's horrible for anybody to go through um but you have to move on you mm-hmm. have to push past all the bad and you mm-hmm. have to want it you know you can't <laughs> sit back and just live in the, the glory days of try through the high school past man i was the <laughs> man you know people are like what do you do I don't start with I'm a retired Delta IV star major. It's like, oh, what do I do? I work at Asymmetric Solutions. I'm working on a book. I'm trying to help veterans. Um, what did I do to get here? Okay, that's my past. Mm-hmm. Need to move into the future and the present, you mm-hmm. know, and you can't do that stepping sideways or backwards. You have to move forward. So
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Tom, and it's been an honor to chat with you here for a little bit, and I, again, so appreciate your, uh, given your experience, your ability to Shed a lot of the, the heaviness and the poison, as you mentioned, and give people a light of hope.
1: So, awesome. Yeah, I yeah. appreciate you having me here. Excellent. Loved it. Thanks again, ma'am. Thank you.